technology, we're really thankful that we were able to um, have a chance to get to know Cynthia and as well as hear from the testimony of Stephen and Fran. And um, It's just an awesome uh, privilege and an encouragement to see what God is doing in his church among the body of Christ, which is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the church as the body of Christ and how we gather in worship and how God uses uh, the means of the Lord's Supper as an opportunity for us to grow together as we center our lives around the cross. And uh, just to begin with, I wanted to start out with this question as I was preparing this week for this message. And it's a, it's a simple question, but one that actually can cause you to maybe think deeply about something. But it's a question is really just what is the church? And um, oftentimes when we run into people or run into friends or when we, we get this question asked or we uh, ask of us or we ask other people and we, we say this regarding kind of the church. We say, well, what church do you go to? And when we ask that question, what we mean is, you know, what church do you attend? And it's interesting that when we ask this question, it reveals an understanding of the church that I think many of us hold or many people hold is that it's something that you attend. It's something that you go to. Rather than something that you belong to. So just recently I was at a, we were in San Diego, we had a big family reunion. It was uh, all the cousins, um, all, all the relatives on my mom's side. And my mom is, has, a, has a large family. And uh, for, I haven't seen some of my cousins for many years. And so there were, there were kids there that I, I didn't even know. I've never even met them. And in the very beginning, um, I didn't know whose kid was whose. And so if I wanted to clarify um, maybe a kid of one of my cousins, but I've never met them before, so I don't really know who's, who's, whose parents they are, you know, I wouldn't go up to a kid in that context and ask them, what family do you attend? I mean, rather, I would say, which parents do you belong to? I'm trying to find out which family is yours, but I would never ask them what family they attend. Because when we think about family, we understand that family is not something that you attend or you go to. Family is something that you belong to. See, when we see the church as an institution or maybe just a building, then church is something that we go to. But when we see the church as the way the Bible speaks of the church, as the people of God, then the church is not something that we go to, it's something that we go with. Therefore, there's really no time when we're not a part of the church or that the church is not a part of us because we've been united together with Christ as the body in the family of God. And so I really want to challenge us is when we think about the church and when we think about the church as the body of Christ, that how we relate to one another as the body of Christ especially when we gather as the body of Christ, as we are right now, that how we relate to each other in the body of Christ when we gather matters. And it matters greatly for our own discipleship, for the health and the growth of the church, and the testimony of Christ in our lives. And so as the church, God has given us two what we call ordinances, practices, that Jesus himself commands the church to continually remember until Jesus returns. And both of these that God has given to the church are means by which we are strengthened as the body. And they're means that grow us in, a, in our appreciation for not just being reconciled to God, but being reconciled to one another and what it means to be a part of the body. And those two 
ordinances are. Baptism and what we're going to look out today, the Lord's Supper. Both remind us of who we are in Christ, but both remind us who we are in Christ towards one another. And so today what I want to talk about is the cross-shaped community. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and the guiding theme that we've been working with is that from one generation to the next, God's love transforms us to become imitators of the crucified Jesus. And so I've been sharing several messages in this series about the cross-shaped life. And today I want to talk about the cross-shaped community. And how does God help us as a community continue to grow in Christ under the shadow of the cross as the cross and the implications of the cross continue to shape our community? How does God help us to persevere and to continue to grow in the midst of great threats? And one way that God does that is that God has given his church the communion, the Lord's Supper, as part of the ways that God has gifted the church with a, with a remembrance, a practice that fuels us in being a community that continually is shaped by the cross. And so the main idea for this message is that the, a cross-centered communion fuels cross-shaped community. How does the regular participation in the communion table, the Lord's Supper that in this church we observe on the first Sunday of every month, how does participating as the body of Christ in the Lord's Supper actually shape us as a community in Christ? What are its benefits? How does it help us? How does it strengthen us? And that's what we're going to look at today. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verses 17 through 34. Before I read it, I just want to give you an overview that really I have two main points today. Um, the first is when we think about the communion table and we think about cross-shaped community, first, as Paul addresses here, I want to look at first a threat. What is a threat to cross-shaped community? And the first point here is, is that there is the, the flesh-centered threat of division. The flesh-centered threat of division, I want to look at that first, and then I want to look at the cross-centered remedy of communion. So we're going to look at the flesh-centered threat of division in the body. And then we're going to look at the cross-centered remedy of communion in the body. Let's read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. Paul writes, In the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the way that the word brings life to us and guides and shapes us as a church. And so God, I pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, that we may hear you, that we may see clearly what it is that you are speaking to us today as a church. And God, I pray that you grant us faith to obey that which you are calling from us, the praise of your glorious grace and for the building up of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the biggest threats that Paul has already addressed in the book of 1 Corinthians to a cross-shaped community, to a cross-shaped living as a community, is a divisive spirit. And so Paul, when addressing this church in Corinth regarding their practice of the Lord's Supper and how it reflects the relationships and how they are functioning as the body of Christ, Paul begins by not commending them, but he instead he confronts them on a way that they were practicing the Lord's Supper and what it means in a way that was contrary to its original purpose. And because of that, there was division and factions and that there was harm to the church. Before we look at the blessing of communion, we have to look at the threat of division. You see, the bedrock of cross-shaped community is unity. Therefore, the greatest threat to the cross-shaped community is division. So what is the issue that Paul is addressing here? And Paul says that when he hears about the divisions and the factions, is he says that when they, when they are gathering together in, in verse 17, it is not for the better but for the worse. Paul is basically saying that the gathering of the body of Christ together, when we gather in worship, that there is great blessing and benefit. That God uses when the time where we are gathering for the building up of the body. In Ephesians 4, you know, we talk about God has gifted the church with different gifts. And with the body, when the body works together in, in love, it builds itself up into maturity in Christ. So the gathering of the Christian community is no casual thing. It's not an optional thing, but it is essential for how God grows us together into maturity in Christ as the body of Christ. And so when we gather, it is, it is supposed to be for our good. It was supposed to bring spiritual benefit. But the way that the Corinthians were gathering, especially when they were gathering and taking of the Lord's Supper, it was not for their good, but actually for their harm. So what were they doing in the context of the Lord's Supper that was actually bringing them harm and not good? What, was, what were they doing that was actually weakening their, their faith in Christ rather than strengthening their faith in Christ? Well, it takes a little bit of digging and, and study to kind of piece together what Paul is addressing in these verses. Now, if you look at the commentaries and you look at the biblical scholars, there's a, there's a lot of uh, speculation. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in, in terms of exactly what was going on. There's a lot of different cultural customs and practices and influences that many people have tried to use to kind of get a clear understanding of exactly what was going on. 
But I think what we can piece together, and this is kind of you know, what I feel like is going on, is that in those days, the early church, when they observed the Lord's Supper, it's different than how we observe it. We observe it as part of our service, just for a few minutes at a time. And when we gather, we, we just observe the elements of the bread and the cup. But in those days in the early church, their lives were much more integrated. And oftentimes when they gathered, they would gather for larger meals in which a part of that meal, there would be an observance of the Lord's Supper. Because I think going back to Jesus at the end of his life in ministry, where the Lord's Supper derives from is Jesus' last supper. The Lord's Supper comes from the last supper. And in that context, Jesus with his disciples, on the night before he was betrayed and before he was arrested, he had a meal. And that meal harkens back to the Old Testament of the Passover meal and remembering God's covenantal faithfulness with his people. And so the early church would not just practice the Lord's Supper as just a 10, 15 minute observance, but it was part of a larger meal that might have taken place over hours as they celebrated together who they were in Christ. We see in Acts chapter 2, the early church, that when they gathered, it says they gathered day by day in people's homes to break bread. Now that breaking bread includes an, an observance out of obedience to the Lord's Supper as Jesus commanded, but it also just included them fellowshipping together and enjoying a meal. In these meals, how it would often work is they would meet in homes. Sometimes somebody in the church, maybe who was more wealthy, maybe had a larger home, that the church would actually gather in their home to have these meals of which the observance of the Lord's Supper would be a part of it. Now also, that the, the culture of the day and these meals, often the temptation was to highlight and to honor those who were wealthy and maybe had greater privileges and honor, especially in relationship to the poor among them. And at, and, and at the root of what was going on here was that there were those who were maybe more, more honored, more esteemed, more wealthy in that community, who when they gather for these meals, they would um, bring their own food. And oftentimes the, the people when they would gather for these meals would bring their own food. And so obviously if you were wealthy, you know, you, you had more to bring. And they would bring these meals and everybody would eat their own. And what would happen was that the wealthy, maybe even in the presence of those who maybe came a little bit later because they were maybe working in the fields, Maybe they were slaves and they had to get permission. They couldn't just control their own time. So you set a five o'clock dinner and those who were wealthy and who were landowners, you know, they could just show up at five, bring their own food and sit down and eat. But those who maybe were working in the fields, maybe didn't get off until six or seven. Or if you were a slave, you just couldn't just show up because you have an appointment at five. You had to get permission. You had to be allowed to come. And, and so maybe people were coming late, but these wealthy Believers in the church were not waiting, and maybe even more so than that, were eating their abundance, all that they had in the presence of those who had far less. And they were, they were disregarding that, as one commentator says, they were practicing indulgence and indifference. 
They were not only getting drunk and fattening themselves on the bounty of their own food, but they were doing so in the presence of those in the church who did not have as much. And they were doing it in their presence with no concern, with with no sensitivity to how that might make them feel in the presence of somebody in the church who was flaunting how much they had, and they had much very little. And many of them were eating what they brought and were still hungry. While those who had more were feasting in front of them. And so what was going on is that Paul was saying that the root of their indulgence and their indifference, the way that they were acting in a way that despises the church and humiliates those in the church who have less or have nothing, that Paul is saying, you know, at the root of this, at the root of this divisiveness where the haves were, were, were placing them at a higher place than the have-nots and causing shame among those in the church, which was creating division where division ought not be in the body of Christ. And Paul says, at the root of this, at the root of this divisiveness is this. And he says this in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And this is a very scathing remark. And Paul says, look, you think you're coming to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but the manner in which you're doing it communicates that it really isn't the Lord's Supper that you're gathering for. It's really just a supper of your own, unlike what you would normally have in your home on any other occasion. That they were treating the Lord's Supper as just any other meal, following normal cultural practices with fleshly values, rather than embracing the radical counterculture values of the cross. They were focusing more on imitating the world in their practice, not imitating the crucified Jesus. And so Paul, in addressing the way that they were coming together as the church in a way that was actually contrary to the very message of the cross that brought them together, Paul points it out and he says, you need to be aware and you need to be mindful that you are having a flesh-centered approach to the community and to the communion. And in doing so, you are dividing the body of Christ and bringing shame and reputation of Christ and the gospel. So what is the remedy? How does Paul address what the remedy is to flesh-centered division in the practice of their communion within the body? Well, for Paul, like he does in all of 1 Corinthians, when he addressed Division back in chapter 2 when he talked about the pride and the boasting and the ways that they were elevating certain leaders. How did Paul address the divisive spirit there? It's the same way Paul addresses the divisive spirit here. And then he says you got to go back to the cross. You got to go back to who we are in the cross and what the cross has done and did for us. And so the remedy for Paul to a flesh-centered division in the body is cross-centered communion. He says, put the cross back at the center of the communion table. Treat it once again as the Lord's Supper, with the cross at the center, not as any other supper, with you at the center. For that is what's causing the division. So to correct 
the divisive spirit where you were at the center, where it's your supper, you need to put the cross back at the center and put Christ at the center and have a cross-centered communion. And so what does the cross-centered communion do for us? And what was Paul instructing for the church? Well, there's three things that when you put the cross back at the center of communion, there's three things that it does and how it addresses the flesh-directed divisiveness. The first is that the cross-centered communion protects unity. A cross-centered communion protects unity. Secondly, a cross-centered communion promotes sacrifice. And then third, a cross-centered communion proclaims Christ. So it protects unity, it promotes sacrifice, and then it proclaims Christ. And so first... When we put the cross back at the center of communion, what it does is it protects unity. And so if the greatest threat to the unity of church is, is, is division, the greatest threat to a cross-shaped community is division, then unity is critical for the growth and the health of the body of Christ and the testimony of the gospel. So when we put the cross back at the center of communion, it first protects unity. And so how does it do that? Well, what we see here is that in verse 23, as Paul addresses now the remedy, he goes back and he goes back to the actual practice of the first Lord's Supper of Jesus himself. And I'll just read this again. In verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The first thing he does in protecting the unity and when we put the cross at the center of communion is that the first thing Paul does is he goes back and he says the practice of communion. The practice of communion was delivered by Jesus himself. The tradition and the practice and the meaning and, and when how the church is supposed to observe the communion is not up for each church to decide for their own how they want to do it. And Paul says what I'm about to say in addressing the ways that you are mispracticing, how you are not practicing in a, in a worthy manner the communion. He says it comes from Jesus himself. And what unifies them first is that the practice and the Lord's Supper itself comes from Christ. That's the first thing, that, the, that the, the authority and the practice comes from Jesus. Secondly, it unites because Jesus, he says, this is my body, which is for you. This is my blood, which is for you. See, there is, there is, there is one body and there was one blood that was broken and was spilled for the salvation of of humanity. There was, there was one body and there's one blood and it was for you. That Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. It is only his body and his blood that could bring adequate and satisfactory payment for sin before an infinitely holy God. See, our flesh tends to divide around the haves and the have-nots. But the cross reminds us that we are all have-nots before God in our sin. Yet God made us haves 
through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. It was his body and it was his blood that was broken and poured out for us. That all of us were all have-nots. But because of Jesus, we, we have all been brought in to the family of God through Christ. And he is the only means by which you were once enemies of God and now friends and family of God. And so in the Christian community shaped by the cross, it protects unity because it helps us see that all of us are haves in Christ through the gospel. Therefore, the communion table with its focus on the cross, regularly reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ. And that equips us to fight against the threat of flesh-centered, flesh-motivated, and flesh-directed division. Also, the Lord's Supper protects unity in that it reminds all of us that everyone is precious and worthy of honor in God's sight. That God was willing to pay that great price for, for all not just the rich, not just the poor, not just the educated, not just the less educated, not just the upper class or the lower class, or men or women, or different ethnicities, Jew or Greek, that the work of Christ brought the opportunity for salvation to all. And so it reminds us that there are no worthless nobodies in the church but that all are worthy of honor because all have been redeemed by the blood of Christ in the body of Christ. And so the cross-centered communion protects unity. The secondly is that the cross-centered communion promotes sacrifice. It promotes sacrifice. When we remember the work of Christ, we're reminded that Jesus gave his body for us. He shed his blood for us. When we put the cross at the center of communion, it reenacts in our minds Jesus' sacrificial, self-giving work on the cross. And then it calls us then to imitate the crucified Jesus in our own self-giving, in our own willingness to sacrifice for the good of others. So that's what was going on in this church, is that they weren't thinking about giving and sharing in the needs of others. They were only thinking about their needs, and taking, and consuming, not sharing and giving, because the cross wasn't at the center of their communion. They were at the center of the communion, and therefore it led to divisiveness, and it led to consuming rather than sacrifice. But when we remember the communion of Jesus' sacrifice, and Jesus' self-giving love, then it binds the church together in unity out of love, rather than division out of pride. The third thing is that the cross-centered communion proclaims Christ. Jesus, I mean, Paul says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we put the cross at the center of communion, it protects unity, promotes sacrifice, but it finally it proclaims Christ. When in our unity and in our sacrifice... It proclaims to an unbelieving world of the reality of the power of the gospel in bringing life transformation. That the gospel didn't just reconcile us to God, it reconciled us to one another. So in the church, when you have people from different backgrounds and you have 
People in the world's eyes have the haves and the have-nots. The world divides. The world wants to separate those who have from those who have not. But the church does not operate under the world's values and the world's methods. The church, being redeemed by the body and the blood of Christ, operates under gospel values and gospel methods. And the gospel says that regardless of your background, regardless of maybe what the world may tend to think are obstacles, the cross brings down those divisive walls and he brings a unity in a body. So you have people who are wealthy and people who are poor who can sit at the same table in fellowship and unity because they share the most important thing and that is Jesus Christ. That they have been ransomed, they have been redeemed, they have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. The cross-centered communion makes permission and grants seats at the table for all when we remember Christ's work for us. And when we do this, when we live in this way, when we bring down those walls that our world and our culture wants to put up to divide, we communicate that Christ's sacrifice brings together a radical new way of living where we don't emphasize what's different, but we rejoice and we celebrate what we have in common. Therefore, when we remember Christ's sacrifice for us and we practice the loving sacrificial life and how we honor and serve one another, then we function evangelistically before an unbelieving world that is examining, that examining the church, examining our lives to see if our faith is real and genuine. Jesus himself says that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love. When the church is being examined by a culture that wants to know whether or not the church is worth their time, will they see something that proves that whatever they thought the church was before was wrong? And that whatever they thought about the church and how it was optional and not essential and doesn't have anything different to offer, that they would be proved wrong when they see the way that we love, that we see the way that we sacrifice, the way that we give honor to those that the world dishonors, that when we do that, we proclaim Christ to a world that desperately needs him, but stands skeptical of their need for him. As we commit to being imitators of the crucified Jesus and dying to ourselves, we proclaim the death of Christ until his return. So what is the application? What is the application for Paul's instructions? Well, the application comes right here in our text. In verse 28, he says, Let a person then examine himself, and anyone who eats and drinks, well, so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So how do we apply this for us? And it would be really nice if we took communion this week, but it's going to be next week. So think about that as we prepare for next week when we observe the Lord's table. But the application for this is what Paul himself says to the Corinthians. We have to examine ourselves in light of the crucified Christ. A cross-shaped life and a cross-shaped community is a self-examining life and is a self-examining community. We have to examine our lives in light of the cross. So how should we examine ourselves in the light of the cross? Well, there's two things. First, we do, and this is normally what we emphasize when we observe the Lord's Supper. We usually ask people to first examine themselves personally. 
in their own walk with Christ. And I think this is appropriate. I think there is a place in observance of the Lord's Supper where we need to examine our own lives. Is there sin that needs to be confessed? Is there an area of disbelief or distrust in the goodness of God? Where, where are those areas in our lives where our lives are not in line with the gospel? Where are we struggling? Where are we casual in our relationship with Christ? And how does the remembrance of the cross bring a new focus and a new energy to our faithfulness to Christ? And so there is a personal examination. But what I want to talk about a little bit longer as we wrap up here is I want to talk about the corporate aspect, which often gets um, maybe not given as much attention when we gather in observing the Lord's Supper. I think what Paul says here in examining himself, I think is primarily in this text, focusing on corporate implications as we examine ourselves in terms of our relationships with others in the body. In what ways have I been indifferent to others? Are there areas of pride? Am I welcoming to others or do I exclude others because they're different? Am I flaunting things that I have in front of others in a way that might humiliate or shame them? Or is there unresolved conflict? See, I think in this context, the issue is regarding food. They're having a meal and people were eating and not sharing, and in that way they were humiliating those who maybe are, are poor and don't have as much to eat, and therefore they were going hungry. And Paul says you're missing, you're missing the whole purpose of communion with the cross at the center when you treat one another that way. And so I was just thinking this week, because I want to get practical here, because I haven't so far, but I want to get practical here. And when I think about how we examine ourselves corporately, I want to bring this one challenge. Because I don't really think the issue here is about food. Because I think we are in a context here where maybe there are some who, who struggle. But overall, I think when we gather, I, think, I don't think that's so much the issue. But I want to talk about this because I think this is something that I do see and I am concerned about. I want to talk about not people who are hungry for food. But I want to talk about people who are hungry for relationships and community. See, there are people in our church. I'm talking this church. There are people here who are experiencing, and it, and it, and it saddens me. There are people who are experiencing an experience of life in this church on the margins. There are people who are maybe socially awkward. Maybe they're, they struggle to make friends. And maybe they're kind of on, pushed to the perimeter of our community. And here's, what, here, here's the thing that really convicts me. Those of us who have been blessed with great connections, those of us who've been blessed where we've, we have friends here, we have good community, we have people who invite us to hang out on the weekends. Are we consuming the blessings of our social connections and in a sense without even knowing, communicating them in public venues like social media and stuff without even thinking that there are people in this church who don't get invited to things. There's people in this church who walk in those doors and they don't have people who say hi. There's people in this church who leave this church and nobody invites them to lunch. There are people in this church who feel like they're alone and they have no friends. So when you put on Facebook all these pictures about how you got to go to all these different occasions and all these people, or when you flaunt about how, oh, it's so hard to choose who to go to lunch with because two different groups want me to go, and, you're, and you're, you're complaining in public about how hard it is to decide, should I go eat with my small group friends? Should I go eat with the, this ministry friends that I serve with? And you've got people who hear you 
who have never had anybody invite them to lunch in maybe six months, nine months, three years being at this church. When we gather in the church, do we indulge and are we indifferent? And are we leaving people hungry for community? Do we just feast for ourselves and I think we shame them? I think it humiliates people when they are in church and they see how everybody else has all these friends and they don't have any friends. And when you flaunt that, maybe unintentionally, I think it shames them. It makes them feel unworthy. It makes them feel like nobody cares for them. And let me tell you something right here. The cross-centered community, the cross-shaped community says this. In the church, there is no reason why anyone should ever feel constantly hungry for relationships and community. It should never be. Paul says in the communion table, nobody should walk away hungry. You should care about people who don't have what you have. So you share and you consider and you wait for them. And when you eat, you include them. But we have people who are relationally hungry every single week. They leave here famished because they wish people would care and they had people that they could live life with and nobody is inviting them to be a part of their lives. It should never be, just like Paul says, it should never be so to have a communion table where people walk out hungry. We should never gather as a church, especially when we remember the cross and ever, ever have people feel like, I, am, I don't belong here, nobody cares about me, nobody knows me, nobody wants to be with me. We need to see Paul's words that an unexamined life where we might live this way without even realizing it brings great danger to ourselves and the church. And we need to go back to remembering that the cross is at the center of the communion table and the cross is at the center of our community. And we should never leave anybody hungry for that which God has supplied abundantly for the church. God has given the church the means by which we can experience real community. There is no excuse for people who are part of a church who are redeemed by the body and blood of Christ who cannot experience that. Those of us who are gifted with those relationships, you invite them into your circles. You go out and you say, hey, you come to lunch with me and my group. We look for people like that. We wait for people like that. We don't rush off to go eat with our friends after church. We wait to see if anybody doesn't have anybody to go to lunch with. And then we say, hey, do you have someone to go to lunch with? No. Hey, come with me. Come with us. Because in the body of Christ, we are a family. And nobody, nobody walks out of here hungry. I don't want to leave on that note. I want to leave with this. When we examine our lives, especially this challenge, when we feel broken and we feel helpless, oh man, that's right, I'm so selfish. When we come to the communion table and what it does is that we, we must examine our lives in light of the cross. But when we come to the communion table, we also need to examine the cross in, in light of our lives. That in our sin, we need to go back to remembering the work of Christ on the cross, on our behalf, the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. That the church is a self-examining community and we need to be so. But our self-examination should not lead us to despair, but rather it should lead us to delight because we have a God who made a way possible that our sins have been forgiven, that our sins have been paid for on the cross. And because of that, our examination does not need to frighten us, but our examination is the means by which we encounter God in a fresh way, his grace 
his mercy and the goodness and the blessing of a family of God that has been brought together by the crucified Jesus. May we live more in light of the cross of Christ and how we gather and how we worship and how we relate to one another. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for your grace and your love for us. I thank you for this text. There's just so much in here, God. And I just pray that God, in, as we prepare for next week, when we come to the table, I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves, that your grace would allow us to look deep into our hearts to where areas of sin, areas where we are not walking rightly with you, but also ways that we're not walking rightly with one another. It doesn't mean we're intentionally harming, but sometimes in our indifference, we harm people. And so, God, may we not be indifferent, but may we be mindful of the people around us who are all worthy of our time and worthy of honor and esteem because they too, like us, have been ransomed by the body and the blood of Jesus. They too are precious in your sight, so they should be precious in our sight. Help us as a church worship and gather in a way that promotes, protects the unity that we have, that is modeled by a self-sacrificial love. And as we do so, we proclaim the goodness and the glory of Christ and his work on the cross today until he returns. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.